the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky hobbies, but also a love for the Lord our God. I'm James, and with me, as always, are my buds, Mike and Brian. Good sirs, how are you both doing today? Oh, well, I had one of those days yesterday that just made me question whether I was good at my job at all, and so I'm feeling kind of down in the dumps and discouraged over that. I am so sorry. Mike and I are going to put that one to rest. You are good at your job, okay? <laughs> well, since you neither of you have ever watched me do my job, I question your opinion. No, but I've, I've watched some of the shows that you've worked on. <laughs> and I know your work ethic. You guys watch me feel much better, so. I, I, know, I, know, I know your work ethic and your character and your attention to detail, which has been evident and shown to me through many mediums. And so I think that qualifies me to think that, yes, you are good at your job. Well, thank you, James. You are welcome. Yeah, and I didn't know squat about visual effects before. Well, I didn't know anything about visual effects post, you know, 1994 since I met you. And, um, you know, now I found out all sorts of fascinating things. So just be glad that you're in the driver's seat and not me because I would last like well, yeah, it'd be like a rodeo. I'd be thrown out of there in 11 seconds. Probably about the same as if I was trying to teach an ethics class. You know, it's amazing how far you can bluff that. I hadn't actually read any <laughs> ethics sources until like six months in. I'm like, man, I really need to start reading something. <laughs> like, humanities is actually an area. Like, okay, I've never done exactly that, but humanities is an area that you can bluff so horribly well. Like, I was in a room full of professionals, like we're talking people who have their doctorates. And all I did was cite Jacobson's article from 1977 that actually indicated a personality study about, you know, and I went on a few more sentences before I realized that they were looking at me, believing me. And so I just ended the sentence that, yeah, I, I don't have an end to this. I'm making this up. I'm just picturing you in front of a classroom of kids talking like you know, ethics 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 definitely let's talk about some ethics who here has run into an ethical situation recently and as they're all raising their hands you're looking to a book to your left and surreptitiously flipping through it to the e section ethics moral principles <laughs> like you're in a person very, 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 oh okay yeah, yeah yeah all right right okay let's continue like, wow, this subject matter is defined a lot differently than I thought. Jeez. <laughs> oh, those ethics. Oh. I mean, it was kind of like the time when we went into the class section on euthanasia and actually <laughs> realized that we shouldn't have been talking about young people in the Orient because that, 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 that started off going very wrong. Well, I'm glad that we are here to brighten your day and to help improve your mood and spirits, my friend. Well, thank you. Mike, how are you doing good, sir? I am doing okay. This is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad to be here. That's, that's actually just kind of getting some down social time, and this podcast is actually a really good thing. I have had a busy, busy month. So... Yeah, I actually hit the point where at some point uh, I've been putting in some extra hours for work, 
and Kaja had gotten sick, so I'd been picking up extra hours at the church and doing some things on the fly that I hadn't expected that I would be doing. And so I just kind of said to everybody at one point, like, okay, this Wednesday, there's no deadlines, there's no nothing. I am taking the day off and reading books and playing video games. And a couple times you were like, oh, well, could you just, like, well, I'm taking the day off. And that means, no, I'm not going to be doing research for car shopping. No, I'm not doing that. I am going to take a mental health day. Good. Or we're all going to see what the crazy version of me, what the crazier version of me looks like. And I don't <laughs> want to be there. I think that was very wise. So what games did you end up playing on your game day? Oh, Man, um, it was it was one of those things like this Sunday before, Saturday before, uh, I had taken a ferry across the harbor, and it was a good, strong wind day. It was the same day that I almost decided to find out whether or not you could get into trouble by flying a kite out the back of a ferry, but decided not to. Um, but I was noticing all of the sailboats just having a great time. And I'm like, yeah, Wind Waker is exactly what I want to do. <laughs> and it was. Cool. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people get down on the game because there's too much sailing. And I'm like, you know, I I enjoyed that mechanic. And I didn't feel like there was much more sailing across the world than there was either galloping across the world in previous versions or walking across the world in, in other versions of The Legend of Zelda. So um, I don't know if I'm going to go all the way through a playthrough, but I'm enjoying the aesthetic uh, art style, the the music and just enjoying the game so far. Was that an SNES game? That one was a GameCube game, which still plays uh, okay. on my Wii. Cool. Well, how are you, James? I understood you uh, got some exercise yesterday. Yeah. Yes, exactly 5K's worth of exercise. No more, no less. I had someone carry me to the starting line, and then they carried me off again when I was done. <laughs> That last one was by, but I, I had no choice in that one. My, I was just dead. Yesterday, I did participate in a 5K run, but not a normal one where you have a, you start at point A, end at point B, and it's a straight line, and you just run. Uh, I did something called Muckfest, which was a mud run with dozens of obstacles spread throughout it. Uh, proceeds for all of it went to the MS Society, and it was... It was fun. It was hard. And I did it with six other people from my church. And I did it because it was a personal goal of mine to try to do a 5K by the time I hit 40 years old. And just a couple of weeks ago, I turned 40. So, Happy birthday. Thank you. And so even though it's technically after my birthday, I'm counting it because I signed up for it months ago. Close enough. Exactly. As someone put out, it happened It happened during my birthday month, so it counts. And well, shortly before I turned 40, I pulled my hamstring so bad, I still haven't been the same. So, I mean, I, I would say you being able to do a 5K a few days after you turn 40, it super counts. Thank you. It was great to do it with my squad. Um, we finished it in just about two hours. Now, a good portion of that two hours was us waiting in line the last couple of obstacles because one of them was uh, a rope climb where you climb up and then you climb across and then you climb back down and they would only allow 15 people on the ropes at a time and the second one was you 
go up to a second level little platform and jump down into an inflating balloon or I can't think of another word for it. Pooflander. Yes. Something like a stuntman would jump on. <laughs> and that was fun. And they could only have a couple of people up there at a time. And some people would get up there, get scared, couldn't figure out if they wanted to or not, and would end up coming back down, which was fine. You know, I got up there. I'm not really that crazy about heights. So getting up there and even though I knew it was going to be a soft landing, there was no danger, jumping off a second-story platform was a little harrowing at first. But it was a lot of fun. It was wet. It was muddy. It was the dirtiest I think I have ever been in my life. That sounds horrifying. <laughs> That's fair. You should come yeah. skating with me. <laughs> I don't think you would have made it past the parking lot, Brian. <laughs> but... To get in the spirit of the day, of course, I wore shorts. I wore a church shirt along with everyone else in my group. And I wore my old, I call them my lawn mowing shoes. My old running shoes that since I got new ones, these these old ones became the ones I'd mow the lawn in. They did not come back home with me. And I wore a pair of uh, Darth Vader socks. You know, Nice. If something's going to get me through this, it's going to be the dark side of the force. And those also ended up staying at the event. They were just, they were done. But it was a great time when I finished it. I had a real sense of accomplishment. Awesome. This this sense that, you know, I set out something I, I dreamed about doing, I'd wanted to do for so long. I did it. I was healthy enough to do it. I didn't die. And I finished. <laughs> and you're not groaning too much. To, yeah. I, I, did, I finished with my team. And I asked people sitting, I'm like, how much time do we have to finish this? They're like, oh, it's not a run. Like, you know, we're not trying to beat a time. You do it at your own pace. I'm like, well, great. Because I was wondering, like, is there a time limit? So three weeks. Uh, yeah, three weeks. How many how many hours do I have to finish it? Is there a set amount of crying that's allowed on the <laughs> run before they just lead you away for embarrassing the whole event? These were things I needed to know. See, I can imagine them still wanting to disassemble the equipment and saying, Mike, everybody else has been gone for two days. You just you just you just need to push through, man, or go home. Yeah. Yeah, I finally get up to the platform to jump into the uh, into the balloon to find that it's already been deflated. And packaged up, but I accidentally jump anyway. And the thing is, he's the third guy to do it. I mean, the other bodies didn't give him a clue. I was just aiming for the big guy that was on the ground. I figured he was the balloon. Only someone had survived to come back and tell us. Yeah. <laughs> Let me put it this way, as far as how I'm feeling right now. If someone asked me to come and do something like that again today, I'd say, absolutely no, go away. Nobody likes you. They asked me if I'd be wanting to do it again next year. I think I might. If I'm still in reasonably good health, if I'm able to get even healthier, then yeah, I'll do it. I'm going to try and encourage my wife to come along and do it with me, and, uh, and we'll see minute. how it goes. You guys can't do a 5K while carrying five kilograms worth of children. You know that, right? <laughs> oh, they weigh a lot more than five kilograms. <laughs> you know, I haven't picked up your kids lately or ever ever <laughs> combined um i'd say they weigh around 30 kilograms yeah i don't think i'm carrying that actually they're <laughs> carrying themselves at that pace yeah they're big old boys but no the kids will be with with grandma and grandpa my daughter though one thing that did impress me was for kids i think five six and older they had a kids water run it was a little muddy but it was mostly like mucky water and just water they could slide up slide down do some climbing get drenched 
and she had a lot of fun doing that. The boys, the boys stayed in the stroller, and Mommy pushed them around while Daddy pushed himself through the mud. I wonder what that looked like through their eyes. It looked like they have any sort of any indication that they were enjoying watching you go through like this was uh, this is either, you know, a playtime for you or that this was silly, ridiculous. Or was this an athletic competition in their eyes? I have no idea. I think all they know is that everybody from all walks of life, all race, religions and colors went into the race and they all came out the exact same color. (laughs) Brown. So uh, I'm a bit sore. I'm a bit battered and bruised. But I'm better for the experience. And on that note, shall we head into Geek Out? Let's. Awesome. I'll go first this week, since uh, Muckfest was one of the things that I was going to talk about. Having said before, earlier in the month was my birthday, my 40th. For my birthday, my wife did something spectacular. She planned a trip for my family and my parents as well to one of my favorite places on earth and that is to branson missouri to go to the park silver dollar city did you see marble cave i did not go down into marble cave because i'm not the the spelunker like you are mike and i've been down into it many times before and i did not want to go down into it with children (laughs) this is probably gonna make me sound awful to everybody but I uh, was nine weeks old. I think that that's when we took her into a wild cave strapped to us. So, yeah, that was that was a real thing. Mm, yes, you are awful. Yes, absolutely <laughs> awful. You are the worst. <laughs> well, the Marvel Cave is cool, but to get down into it, they have built out of concrete and steel, basically just a like one staircase that just kind of revolves around metal metal staircase that revolves around a concrete pillar and i know my lovely lady would not want to go down that holding a boy neither would i because most of the time the steps are wet and no way that i'm going to go down there with a pair of two-year-olds with just holding their hand as well because the only thing that's between you and the edge is a couple of pieces of rebar yeah, once you say two, that kind of puts things into a different perspective. I'm trying yeah. to remember what the cave was like. and But I remember very distinctly what two was like, and that was painful. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we didn't go to the cave, but the park was a lot of fun. This time of year, they were having a craftsman festival. So Silver Dollar City, for those who may not have heard of it, is a 19th century Western reenactment, craft, and a ride theme park. And, I mean, if you want to go on roller coasters, they've got roller coasters. If you want to see craftsmen doing metalworking or glass blowing, woodworking, candy making, you can see all of that as well. If you want to see some live music shows, they've got several little theaters spread throughout the park and a lot more. This weekend that we were there, they had a another, I think, 150 to 200 craftsmen on site doing demos and selling their wares. And so that was a lot of fun. The weekend that we went, it was absolutely beautiful. It was like highs were in like the upper 60s, low 70s. And so, you know, partly cloudy, could not have asked for better weather. The boys, they were mostly just kind of staring around at everything, taking it all in. They've also got a lot of children's activities and children's areas as well. 
And uh, we got to look at some craftsmen. We did some shopping. Went on a few rides with her. Went on the train, of course, which the boys were ecstatic about going on. And it was a great trip. I would say that probably Silver Dollar City is probably the best part about Branson. Although it has a lot of forms of entertainment that aren't quite geared towards towards my niche. But Silver Dollar City has a lot of really interesting stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it's always been one of my favorite. I've never been one who has cared a lot about roller coasters and like big thrill rides so growing up six flags worlds of fun and places like that just it didn't really interest me a huge amount but i love silver dollar city i love the rides they had there some of the water rides and more uh, they have one that my daughter really enjoyed going on called the great shootout in the flooded mine the premise of it is these prisoners were being used down in this mine for labor and they, the mine gets flooded, and so when that happens, they're all trying to break out. And so the sheriff sends you in these mining boats to go through, and you've got like a little, a little laser gun. It looks like a six-shooter, but it's a, it shoots infrared beam lasers. And it's your job you say to— laser bullets. Laser bullets, yes. And it's your job <laughs> to shoot at targets that are throughout these animatronic scenes throughout the ride— of prisoners trying to escape or mining or blowing things up and you're shooting little targets and that always sends off a reaction at a nearby object and you get a little score counter on your gun and it's fun that's new since i've last been but i haven't been in like 25 years so that that may have something to do with it Mm -hmm. from since you went it's probably a completely different park i don't doubt it so yeah a couple of shows that my wife and I have enjoyed watching. Uh, we finally finished up watching in entirety the last season of the show The Librarians. Have either one of you two I have seen, not that? seen that? That has been on my list for a while, but I haven't taken the time to watch it. Did you ever watch Warehouse 13 when I it was love on the Warehouse 13? Yeah. If you liked Warehouse 13, you're going to love The Librarians. Somewhat of a same premise. Noah Weil, who has been in various TV shows, uh, he's been in medical shows. He was on ER for a long time. He was in a alien invasion post-apocalypse TV show from the early uh, 2010s called Falling Skies. And then he came on to do, well, first he started off as a couple of made-for-TV movies. There was The Librarian and the, the Quest for the Spear, The Librarian, The Curse of the Judas Chalice, Return to King Solomon's Minds, kind of setting him up to be a semi-mystical Indiana Jones. The idea is that underneath this great library is a is another level which hosts the real library, which besides being home to every book and tome ever written, is also home to mystical artifacts that have been in use and been created throughout human history. And as the librarian, it's his job to guard them and to obtain new ones that happen to get out into the world. See, I'm more attracted to the idea of have every tome ever written. I mean, mystical artifacts, I, I don't trust myself to use them. I, I, I would abuse it on the train during rush hour. But every tome ever written, that, that I could get into. Yes. And so they decided to turn the made-for-TV movies into a TV series. They expanded it beyond just having one librarian, which they've got him in there. His name is Flynn Carson. They started expanding the lore of the series and of the show. Uh, to include that he has a guardian. They cast Rebecca Romaine as his guardian, and then they brought in other actors as well to be new 
librarians to assist. They've got Christian Kane, John Harlan Kim, Lindy Booth as well, and veteran actor who's been in so many great TV shows and who was fantastic, John Larroquette. He plays a character named Jenkins who just, you know, he doesn't really have an official title in the library, but he's just there and he helps a lot. And he is delightful. That series ran four seasons, all of which I believe, well, it was all available on Hulu for a while. I know the last season is available on Hulu. I think the last two seasons, I think all four might be on there as well. You would have to go check it out. But that's how we watched it. Gotcha. So no Netflix yet that we know of? No. But what we did watch on Netflix, which was a Netflix exclusive, is the animated series The Dragon Prince. Oh, I just started that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was excellent. Um, yeah, that was, uh, isn't Aaron Ahaz the guy who's kind of the showrunner for that? Yeah. Who also did Avatar, The Last Airbender. Yeah, this thing is very much a spiritual successor to that. It is. It's very good. I love so many elements of it. The plot line has really drawn me in. The voice acting, the animation, though. And, Brian, I thought of you when I noticed this about the animation quality, while that it's beautiful artwork. But during a lot of the action sequences and even some of the scenes which had a slower pace, it was getting quite blocky at times. Low budgets. That's what I figured. But what kind of struck me as weird is, one, if this is a show that is being backed by Netflix... And two, the people behind it did The Last Airbender. Then why is their animation budget suffering in places? Well, bear in mind that Netflix is making a lot of shows. True. They've got their money spread out around a lot of projects. And so the budgets aren't per project aren't necessarily as high as you might expect. That's fair. And it's not exactly like they can hit the... I mean, with children's television, they're expecting that advertising is going to be lucrative for toys and expendable income for those advertising slots. When you have a kid's show on Netflix, it's the same subscription base as what's fueling shows that the adults are talking about. I mean, it's the adults that are purchasing their subscriptions or keeping their subscriptions because they want to see Stranger Things three next season or they want to see the new orange is the new black i wonder how much you know i don't know but i wonder how much budget is getting put into their kids department even though we know that um rna has is not just for kids very true but if anyone hasn't gone and checked out the dragon prince yet i highly recommend they do so something that both joy and i commented on that we absolutely loved was it's set in a fantasy medieval Western Europe-ish type of nation and world. You got humans on one side, you got different species of elves on the other. They're kind of at a Cold War stance over the fact that humans killed a dragon uh, whom the elves revere. And so as revenge, these Moonshadow elves send some assassins to kill a human king. And what we enjoyed was, I'm going to give a little bit away from the first episode, but it has been out for about a month now. But one assassin is a young elvish girl and one of her jobs is to kill not just the king, but to kill the princes, two young brothers who become basically the main focus of the series. And while chasing them, these two boys find a big secret that this dragon that was killed, it had an egg. And they find it, and it's, it's huge that this dragon egg still exists. 
And when the elvish girl sees that the egg exists, it was her belief that humans were all bad. Humans killed this dragon. They're all the worst. And when she sees that these two young humans are trying to protect the egg, then she has a sudden change of mind and a change of heart. And then it's, let's not kill them. Now it's, I'm going to help these boys get this egg out of the castle. We're going to protect it. We're going to try to get it to where it needs to be to hatch. And this will hopefully create a peace between the humans and the elves. Because it sent the message, fighting, death, war isn't the only way. There is always another way for peace. We're going to fight to give peace a chance, which I thought is a great message. But apparently you two are all about blood and death and kill the elves. Well, I mean, this is the thing is that I just don't understand. Like, why are they not just taking the nuclear option and just detonating the entire realm? No. Um, I've only gotten a couple of episodes in. So this just came across my radar right at the time when we're trying to budget exactly how much television time we want to have in our lives. And so I want to get more caught up on this show, but really have not had any television time to actually do so. And it, I've seen the advertisements, but I haven't started it yet. Gotcha. I'm two episodes in. Go do it. Yeah. Do it, Brian. And <laughs> there's only nine episodes in the season, so it won't take you that long to get caught up. I've got a couple of shows that I'm waiting to get done uh, before I start a new animated show. That's fair. But it's definitely on my list. So that pretty much wraps it up for me for Geek Out. Which one of you two wants to follow? I'll go next. I don't remember which of you it was that suggested it, but I started watching The Good Place. Oh, yeah. I like that. That is such a good show. And it's by the same showrunner that did uh, Parks and Rec and The Office, and so I didn't think I was going to enjoy it, but it's it's got a really different feel to it, a different style of comedy, that I'm really liking it. And, of course, I could look at Kristen Bell all day. She does such a wonderful job at her performances so that is just she in every way is a grace to the screen with that Mm -hmm. show she so embodies the best and worst parts of that character yeah and i appreciate it's obviously (laughs) not really consonant with christian belief the way it's set up the way the afterlife works but i appreciate that they're making the point that she's going to well she's supposed to be in the bad place not because she's an evil, horrible person, although she's on the underside of you know human behavior, but mostly she's just venal and selfish, and at least I see a lot of myself in her. I mean, I look at her and say, well, at least I'm not that bad, but I'm pretty close in a lot of ways. I think that's one of the brilliant things about the writing of that character, is that nobody ever looks at themselves and says, you know, I've been thinking. I'm an awful human being. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, sometimes you might say that, but not genuinely meaning it rather than just, you know, wallowing in one of your worst of worst days. But there are times that we can all look at ourselves and say, I have acted so selfishly in this instance. That's terrible. If she was somebody who was, I don't know, Walter White from Breaking Bad. I don't think that we would be so quick to watch her try to make these redemptive actions. Mm-hmm. Her awfulness is relatable because it's nothing really that on the grand history of human atrocities. She's not that awful. She's just really not good. 
She's but just these, packed a lot that, of small offals into one person. Yeah. Yes. And so the fact that she's trying to make these steps to being not awful is also relatable. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a brilliant show. I definitely recommend it. I think it's right up there in my enjoyment with Better Off Ted. Uh, besides that... Have you finished the first season yet? I am one episode away from the end of the first season. I'll probably finish it tonight. Yeah, shoot me a Facebook message when you do, if you don't mind. Okay. <laughs> I want to throw this in there based on what you just said, Brian. One of these mm-hmm. days, we need to do an episode where we focus on TV shows that should have received more seasons. And Oh, man, I could talk for a long time yeah, on that. When we do, we're going to include Better Off Ted near the top of that list. Yes. I mean, I want to say Firefly, but, I mean, everybody. Says. Well, that's a, that's given, a given. That's That doesn't even need to be on the like, That's a given. Um, also on Netflix, I just watched Scott Pilgrim vs. the World for the first time. Oh, that was so amusing. That's got to be... It's not the best movie, and I don't know that it's my favorite movie, but I think it's a movie that I enjoy more than any movie I've seen in the last 10 years. Really? Yeah, it's... I, I don't know really how to say what I'm trying to say, but it's like, <laughs> at every point in that movie, I'm just like, this is a great movie. Why did I not see this before? And it's funny because I actually worked on it. <laughs> <laughs> really? I never knew you worked on it. What did you do for yeah, Scott Pilgrim? Uh, there's oh, a sorry. scene with the guy on the, the skateboard, and he goes down the long, long rail and then explodes at the bottom. Uh, we did just a little bit of a set extension on the stairs and the rail. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a really, really small thing. But I, we got to that scene. I'm like, wait a minute. I remember this. Hey, I worked on this show. <laughs> I didn't realize it when I started watching that it was the, a movie that I'd, that I'd worked on. That is so funny. Yeah, one of the things that's so great about that film, I haven't seen it in years, but just the story beats and the comedy beats are just dead on every one of them like it it just has this wonderful pace and the comedic timing is fantastic and so it's yeah it just makes it such a joy to watch especially for its sillier moments Mm -hmm. which is i mean really at the premise of this film where you have to face the the seven x's i mean i mean most of the film is silly in one respect or another but it's delightful yeah, and I really like the storytelling style with the jump cuts and the time compression. In most movies, that would have just really bothered you, but it was like, in this one, you forgive it. It makes sense, and it works for this film. Like Memento being told in reverse order, for most movies, it doesn't work, but for that one, it's perfect. The same thing with Scott Pilgrim. It's just all of these jump cuts, all of these, hey, we've jumped forward two days, and we're still in the same conversation. Mm-hmm. And what I found was interesting looking back at the movie was it seems that Ramona's dating history includes half of the heroes from both Marvel and DC. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. There was Captain America. There was Brandon Ruth, Supermouth. I mean, Supermouth. 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 <laughs> from I Image. that show. <laughs> uh, Superman. And well, and he's I'm also sure there's Ray more. Palmer and on he's, uh, Legends Tomorrow. That's right. And I'm sure there's more as well. I think not her ex, but I think Scott Pilgrim's, one of his former girlfriends. Wasn't Brie Larson yes. in that movie who's going to be playing Captain Marvel soon? Oh, yeah. They hadn't put that together. 
And I think I saw a cameo by Moist from Dr. Horrible. I'm not sure that it was him, but I think I saw him. I wouldn't doubt it. I kind of spaced out for a minute. I was too busy uh, trademarking the name Supermouth for writing a comic book. What were you saying? Actually, I was just about to move on a little bit. As I mentioned in my last, or not my last, our last episode, I got a new computer. I'm sitting here at my desk caressing it right now. Uh, (laughs) um, And so having been unable to play my games for like nine months on that old Pentium processor, I looked through my Steam library and I saw, oh, I didn't finish playing Civilization VI. So my last two weeks has been eaten by civilization. Yeah, so and how's that going for you? Well, I'm uh, currently working on a cultural victory with Teddy Roosevelt. So I'm in Bully the for you. <laughs> I think that means I've got maybe three or four more civilizations before the end of the list. And then I can say, okay, I finished it. I'm just going to play six or seven dozen more games. <laughs> There hasn't been any time to geek out about anything other than that these past two weeks. I was just thinking a cool idea would be you create your nation in the game and then you put on the Oculus Rift and you get to walk amongst the walk walk in the streets. Although I don't know what would a civilization do if it saw its creator walking around. I mean, you would have to run fast in that Oculus Rift if that society isn't quite right. (laughs) You know, he could walk amongst them, or he could be the natural disaster that hits. He could be the tornado. He could be the Godzilla monster that wrecks the streets. No, I think you've got to confuse with SimCity. I'm not saying you can't do yeah. both, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> there actually was an attempt in the um, EVE Online universe to kind of meld the RPG with a real-time strategy with a first-person shooter and all of those happening in kind of the same world. Oh, it wow. didn't really work out. Dust 513 or something, I think, was the first-person shooter. And I don't think they ever got the real-time strategy layer working. But I always thought it would be really cool to have a game in which some people are playing the, the high-level civilization-type game, and then there's other players who are playing the real-time strategy, and they're more involved in the, the local tactics. And then there's another group of players that are actually the grunts on the ground following the orders of the guy doing the real-time strategy who are following the orders of the guy doing the turn-based strategy. That would be an amazing concept, and I can just imagine an entire group of gamers that hate each other because of it. Oh, yes. <laughs> as if they didn't have enough fuel to go at each other online. And as mad as you get when your guys don't quite do an what you wanted them to in Warcraft or something, if they were actual people and you gave them orders and they ran off some (laughs) totally different direction, you would be screaming at the screen. Oh, it would be very bad for people. Yeah. It would be worse than diplomacy for destroying relationships. (laughs) For those who don't know, diplomacy is a board game that will destroy your relationships with all of your family and friends. Do not play it, except with total strangers. Or if you're just wanting to, to cut off ties, burn bridges, and get some new friends, then you know, <laughs> right. do whatever you want. That's your goal, then diplomacy is your game. <laughs> this is your breakup game. <laughs> I did think of you, Brian, when I saw a trailer for a new VR game that's going to be coming out very soon. It's a Star Wars game called Vader Immortal. 
Oh, yeah, I've seen advertisements for that. If you do not get this game, then you and I will be playing Diplomacy together. <laughs> so, okay, I haven't seen this, but if it's a VR game and it's Vader Immortal, I'm assuming you are the main character of Darth Vader and going chop Saki through the Star Wars universe. Is, is that anywhere close? I don't know. I haven't actually watched the trailer. i just seen, ooh, there's a Star Wars um, VR game. I need to look into that. There's not much that's known about it right now. There's a teaser trailer, and after this episode comes out, we'll make sure to put it up on the Geek at Arms Facebook page. It does reveal that the player is going to visit Vader's castle on Mustafar. So you're not playing as Darth Vader, but your character is going to be wielding a lightsaber, and you're going to be doing battle or training with a droid. That is all that is seen so far. Okay, then. Uh, well, that wraps up what I've been geeking out about. So uh, over to you, Mike. Um, there's been a couple of things on my radar lately. Uh, as I had mentioned, um, my wife and I are trying to reduce the amount of TV time that we have and just kind of have a better time if we are doing something that engages each other. So we've been hitting our game cabinet, which is sizable enough to get us through the evenings. And we've actually, not too long ago, picked up Machi Koro Bright Lights Big City. And I can't decide at this point if I love this game or hate it or a little bit of both. Because um, it's the third iteration of the Machi Koro line. There was uh, the original game, Machi Koro, then there was an expansion, and then there was another side deck, and then there were actually uh, some internet groups that said, you know, if you modify the rules thusly, it actually gives you more diversity in how you play. And the company was actually paying attention to what the online communities were doing, and they're like, uh, no, that is so good, that's going in the rules the next time around. And the result of taking all the best of what they had out there was Machikoro Bright Lights Big City. You are basically trying to build a city uh, it has a dice rolling mechanics. You roll a die, and whatever number shows on the die or dice, it activates those cards that you've drafted in your city. So you initially wind up trying to draft and pay for uh, cards that are one, twos, threes, five, sixes, and use those on as the basis of the city that you develop for combinations of twos and threes for your sevens and eights and tens and twelves and up to 14s. And the object of the game is to have all of your city's monuments completed and to get there first. Uh, and depending on how you draft your city and how well you are able to strategize for predictable patterns in two or three dice depends on how well that you actually successfully accrue funds. The thing is, is that since it is drafting and dice rolling and engine building, it's when you have all of the probabilities stacked up and you cannot get your engine to go off. That is just maddening. Or if you are not able to draft the cards that you need to build off of those twos and threes and fives that you've built, that it's just, oh, I cannot get this. But as frustrating as it has been, I don't think I've ever played a game that wasn't at least fairly close towards the end at a two-player game. But it plays out fairly well as a three-player game, and it also scales up to four. So 
Yeah, I'll continue playing that. See what see what we can what we conclude as to whether we're going to continue to hit that or you know just go back to an oldie and goodie like Dominion. Also on the gaming front, yesterday was Boston Fig, which is the festival of independent games. So there's a bunch of small time local independent board game producers and video game producers that get together in one of the MIT buildings, and it's fifteen bucks to get in. And you just get to peruse the exhibit hall and see what's up and coming. One thing that really caught my eye is that since GameRight is a local company, I mean, it is within easy biking distance of my work, I had a chat with one of their sales reps, and they had something sitting out on the table that had absolutely beautiful table presence called Forbidden Skies, which is the next game in their Forbidden Island, Forbidden Desert series. The games are different enough that it's not like you're rebuying the same game. I'm not looking at you, Munchkin, but I probably (laughs) should be. In this game, instead of having map tiles that are face down and you're exploring them and overturning them, as your actions, you can draw and place map tiles. And what you are trying to do is locate and build a circuit so that you can launch your spaceship. And as you are building a circuit to power a spaceship, you are literally putting together pieces that are magnetic and conductive to complete a circuit that lights up and powers a rocket ship. I mean, that is such awesome (laughs) table presence. And there's also some penalties for trying to build a circuit that is too large, because if you get a, a lightning strike and you happen to be on that circuit when you pull the lightning strike card, you take damage. So it really makes you think about how you put the game together in a literal sense. I didn't get a chance to play it, but I did look through the mechanics and it at least looks really interesting and has, as I've said before, and I'll say it one last time, glorious table presence. I'm looking at it right now on boardgamegeek.com and it looks fun. There's only one way to find out and it ships like tomorrow. So by the time this thing gets out of editing, people will be able to pick up the game. I'm going to have to add that to my list. So kind of the last thing that's on my list is I've been, as my train reading, I've been reading a a book called Dreamcatchers. It's a new book from a small-time publisher. Um, Actually, a friend of mine wrote the book, and I picked it up and said, you know, hey, I'm going to support a local author and, and also support my friend as an author. And as I've been reading it, it's actually been a fascinating concept where it actually has kind of a sci fantasy feel, if that makes any sort of sense, that there is this race of beings that uh, exist in some, it's never called an alternate dimension or alternate plane of existence, but they live in an alternate sphere that comes into contact with humanity in their dream, and they actually live off of energy that is produced in dreams, and more pointedly towards children's dreams, and uh, they will fight on behalf of the children and defend them from their own nightmares, but their most potent threats are night terrors, which, of course, one comes into the narrative as rare and dastardly as those creatures are. So I'm about halfway through the book and uh, really enjoying the 
I don't know the the different feel that the that the book has. It's different from the sci-fi and fantasy that I've usually engaged in. So I'm really enjoying it. Is the book available on Amazon? It absolutely is, and we are going to be placing a link to the book uh, as soon as the show is released. And James, I'm going to send a copy of that link to you so that there is uh, there's no question as to which Dreamcatcher's book we are talking about. Gotcha. Well, it sounds that Geek Out is pretty well wrapped up. All right. Well, I've been wanting to talk about the topic of time travel for several months, and Mike and James are less than enthusiastic about it, but we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> Unless one of us comes back from the future to stop you. <laughs> right. Pause. It hasn't happened Oh, my yet. God, James. Ah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I like love James time travel stories. James had the opportunity to go back in time and kill Hitler or stop Brian, and he chose stop Brian. I mean, this must have not gone well. <laughs> well, we can say with relative certainty that if time travel exists, it must be impossible to kill Hitler because he hasn't been killed or he hasn't have been killed. He, See, he wouldn't have is... been, has been. Yeah. The verb tenses are a problem. Yeah, verb tenses are the biggest problem with time travel. <laughs> How do you do a past action that hasn't happened yet? So it's not um, the time police that have protected Hitler from being killed. It's the grammar police. I am will yeah. have done. <laughs> I am will have done. See, I actually have been kicking around with a friend like the premise of a role-playing game called Let's Kill Hitler. And the idea is that there is one basic moral imperative of time travel, and that is as soon as anyone invents it, they have to go back in time to kill Hitler. And the premise of the game, though, is that all of these time travelers are just bottlenecking each other and getting in each other's way. Like a sniper takes the shot at Hitler, and then another time traveler appears just unfortunately in the way of the bullet and takes that, and <laughs> Hitler escapes. And once you kill Hitler, then something terrible happens. I think the idea was chrono-Nazis get involved, clone Hitler from his dead body, and now there's 80 Hitlers. So you have to go back in time and stop yourself from killing Hitler so that you could kill Hitler properly, where that they will never find the body, and so and so and so <laughs> forth. So that it, And you have so many different failures, you can't get back into the same bottleneck of time travelers all over each other. So... That's the basic premise. I, it doesn't have any mechanics or adventures written. No, but there's a premise. I would watch that show. <laughs> I would play that game. <laughs> there was an, an XKCD in which that came up. You have to you have to kill Hitler if you have a time machine. It says, fine, I'll kill Hitler. And he comes back and says, there. He was in some kind of bunker. Man, 1945 was loud. Yeah, <laughs> that was actually what I what we had built it out is that we had actually had some sketches of some adventures, and the very last adventure was in a bunker in 1945. Like this is the last <laughs> ditch attempt, and so that's what does him in as the time traveler in the end. The YouTube. How do we know that there that it didn't actually happen? And Hitler would have been way worse if a time traveler hadn't gotten involved. Okay. On this very topic, the the YouTube channel Glove and Boots. <laughs> the puppets Mario and Fafa, they did an episode, Top 10 Reasons Why Time Travel is the Worst. And one of them was 
about you get in your time machine. It's because time travel is confusing. And let's say you go back in your time machine to kill Hitler. But what if by trying to do that, you accidentally create super Hitler? And what if by trying to fix that, you accidentally create 20 Hitlers? It's too frustrating. Forget about it. Go play Xbox. <laughs> yeah. So, And this is the thing with time travel that it's such a popular mechanic of, of sci-fi and fantasy. And it's one of those things that is deeply rewarding and also deeply frustrating because you sit there and like, wait a minute. You have this device that you can just turn back and forth on your necklace and go back any amount of time that you want. So speaking of going back and killing Hitler, why didn't we just kill Voldemort? I mean, Hermione, you had your chance. This is okay. But no, no, she wanted to take extra classes. And <laughs> though I have to say that in that book, it really demonstrates one of the ways that time travel goes well is when it doesn't feel compelled to make one modicum of sense. Like, you are taking this dangerous, magical item through which wizards and witches have been known to kill themselves in the past and present versions of themselves, and you hand it over to a junior hire. What, <laughs> what are you thinking? But, you know, it, it doesn't need to make sense. It works for the narrative, and it's, it's silly, and it's fun. And if it tried to take itself too seriously, I think I wouldn't have liked it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's always the trouble with time travel is the causality problem. You go back and you fix something, so you no longer have the reason to go back to fix it. But the ones that are good, the ones that do it well and avoid that problem, I find really compelling. And it's all the stories that go on underneath the story you see, because you have this timeline where, okay, something happened, I have to fix it somehow, and you have to have gone through this loop several times, a lot of times, in order to get to the place where you're showing the audience what they're seeing. Um, I just recently read a, an article about 12 monkeys, and the author postulated, I think, eight or nine alternate timelines, well, playthroughs of the timeline to get to the movie that we saw. Mm. And it was a, of course, it's a mind-bending movie to start with, and to read his analysis of it, bent it a little bit more but i just i just love putting my brain in that place and thinking about it see i absolutely love 12 monkeys when it came out in the theater and i keep wanting to revisit that show because i remember it being such a phenomenally good time and also in many ways if i'm not wrong pretty ambiguous is this character actually time traveling or has this guy just flipped his lid or both <laughs> Yeah, um, I think that's one that will, at least I've got it on my list for our film club movies. It might be 12 years before we get to it, hmm. but it's one I definitely love to discuss. And if we get to it in which timeline, like Brian has seen it, but <laughs> I don't know. Um, I wanted to ask the question, have you ever encountered it as an event or a situation that makes you think maybe time travel might have been involved? I actually met someone who did think that time travel was involved, and it was because he was trying to navigate his way through this city in Missouri. I'm trying to remember what city it was. 
um, my wife says from the background that it was Joplin. That might very well be. I have no recollection to contradict her, so I will take no. it as <laughs> absolute uh, truth. As someone who has driven through Joplin and whose wife has had family in Joplin, I can tell you that Joplin does actually sit at an interspatial nexus, and <laughs> it is one of despair. Yeah, the thing is that I've done this through the city where you're driving through and you're entering the city and somehow you take the wrong exit and you just keep going and you haven't realized it. And then you find yourself entering the city on the same road at the same angle. And you're like, wait, how is it that I have driven in and out of the city and I'm going right back in? Did a black and cat first- go in front of your car twice in a row? <laughs> it it might have just been a glitch in the matrix. Yes, exactly. Well, that happens to me every time I try to leave Pasadena. <laughs> See, I have only left Pasadena by air, so that was well. No, that's not true because I had to go to LAX. But <laughs> hmm. well, I hadn't actually. You never finished your story. Well, he just sat there and told me about how he must have hit a temporal loop because he was driving into the city twice, and I oh. just and I said, you know. I, are you sure you didn't just go ahead and, you know, there's this weird loop here. It's like, no, no, this is a temporal loop. I, <laughs> we, we, I'm like, okay, then temporal loop it is. So, I mean, haven't all of us at one point or another, either by, we look at something, we hear something, we smell something, whether it's driving down a road, having a conversation, and we get hit with a incredibly strong sense of deja vu. Like we've done this before, we've seen this before, we've we've acted this way before. And what if it's not just our the chemicals in our brain playing tricks on us? What if it is actually that we have gone through some type of time fissure and we are re-experiencing something that has already happened in another time or reality? Well, Ghostbusters came out a few years ago. Ladies' pants are now up a lot higher. I, I'm not sure that temporal looping isn't happening. <laughs> Well, I had an encounter, and this wasn't something that, like, I talked to the guy, but I was driving down the road, I stop at a light, and I look over, and there's this guy standing on the corner, and he's wearing this suit, and it looks brand new, but it looks like he bought it in 1960, and he's got this device in his hand, this this boxy electronic something or other, and I don't recognize what it is and it's like there's a guy in a brand new suit from the 60s with a strange electronic device and that's a time traveler i know it see this is the problem with the theory i know but here's the thing is that i i was actually thinking about this very idea not long ago is that if time travel is ever invented it is never popularized enough to trickle down to the to the regular consumer because people from three states away can't disguise the fact that they're tourists. Once you get into chrono tourism, these people are going to stick out like a sore thumb. Just like that guy. Just like that guy. He was actually from 2156 and he had found the popular fashions of 2018. And so no one will notice him there. There's a, uh, a law of time travel called Niven's Law, postulated by the sci-fi author Larry Niven, who says that if there's a possibility of time travel changing the past, then no time machine can exist in that universe 
because every time one is invented, someone will go back and manage to change things enough to edit the time machine out of the continuity, and it will uninvent itself. Hmm. And that's why you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear. Travelers. I'm glad to hear that somebody has actually put that principle to paper. Because when I was in high school, I thought of a similar idea of like a short story of how time travel basically uninventing itself. And glad to hear that the high school aged me thinking that he had an original idea did not actually have an original idea. That's actually comforting because the <laughs> way that that outline was put together was really bad. <laughs> so. Beyond possibly experiencing time travel in our in our own lives or instances where we thought, hmm, that must have been time travel. What are some instances in TV shows or movies that have shown time travel where you thought they did it well or did it bad? And I'm asking this because, like the two of you, I've watched a lot of fantasy and sci-fi TV shows and movies and at some point, they all do a time travel episode. And I find myself, more often than not, when I see what they're doing, I'll just go, ah, well, let's get this out of the way. And I think it's because I've seen so many examples where they do time travel, and it's they're using the same formula over and over again. See, I've seen a couple of times when the formula works well. Uh, have either of you watched a television show on Netflix called Dark Matter? No, not yet. Basic idea, you have this ragtag team of outlaws that has a ship, and uh, they are going along trying to pursue their own interests and wind up getting caught into a greater web of intergalactic conflict as they have the most powerful faster-than-light drive that is available, mostly by accident. And somehow, and I don't remember how the time travel episode worked its way in, but one of the least likable characters winds up in contact with a temporal device, and he winds up groundhog-daying the whole episode. And one of the mechanics that he uses is he needs to persuade somebody that he's stuck in a groundhog day. And so what he does is talks to the ship's android and says, I need to learn a skill that I would never learn in a hundred years. And they come up with him learning French. And so one day at a time, every day, he starts to learn French in order to persuade everybody that he has been looping the same day because yesterday he couldn't speak French and today he can. And it was just so delightfully silly, especially watching the scenes of him learning to speak French. And I don't remember exactly how the episode wound up resolving itself in terms of persuading everybody that time travel was happening and Groundhog Day was, was happening. But I think that in the end, somebody just smashed the device that they figured out was causing it. And it was like, do you know what? This is delicious because this is fun. It is taking a formula that we've seen before, but doing it in such a wonderful way that it's a joy to watch. And if the answer is breaking the device, then you never really took this seriously. And I think that <laughs> I enjoy time travel 
when they don't feel the need to get into the nitty gritty mechanics of how does it happen and what does it affect and what are the overall implications. Now, they, they do have some contact with the far distant future, and there are instances where they're able to have an effect on the future of the show but still done in the same delightful fashion. That Groundhog Day premise was also used in one of the few episodes of Stargate that I ever That's one saw. Of my favorites. Where O'Neill and Teal'c get stuck repeating the same day over and over again, and they spend what would be days to us but months to them trying to figure out what's happening, learning about what's going on, trying to get out of it, until finally O'Neill is like, you know what? I'm taking this day off. And that sets up this beautiful, wonderful scene where it shows different snippets from their day. One's riding a bicycle down the hallway. They've got the Stargate, which costs like a million dollars every time they use it. They've got it open, and they're hitting golf balls through it. <laughs> so, See, so how far away is uh, Gamma Centauri 4? Several billion light years. No, oh, it's got to be some kind of that's record. Be a record. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that that is the best time travel slash Groundhog Day in all of sci-fi. And you, what I've said that's that a bold Dark claim, but it's that. certainly one of my favorites. As someone who never really got into watching the Stargate series, I would still recommend that episode. It's fun. So, other things in terms of what's been done well in sci-fi time travel. Um, most of Doctor Who I've enjoyed. Agreed. And I think that one of the reasons for that is, again, it does not take the time travel aspect seriously. It says, Doctor hey, Who this is a no internal form. consistency. No. Great. Wibbly you know what? When it doesn't have when it doesn't try to have internal consistency is when it's at its best. Mm-hmm. It, when they've tried to do as much as I loved the character of River Song. The more they tried to do with her, the less sense any of it made. And the more the writers for Matt Smith tried to explain how this worked, the more they did with him trying to explain aspects of time, the less I enjoyed it. Like, can't we just have the wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey ball well, It's like dust? any fantasy. As soon as you explain it, as soon as you, you pull back the curtain, it loses the magic. Mm-hmm. And as long as it's we don't know what the heck is going on. It's fun. As soon as you start yeah. saying, trying to explain why it works and how it works, it just gets pedantic, and you're like, uh, this isn't fun anymore. Yeah. Let's get back to the wibbly-wobbly stuff. Yeah. And as as soon as Martha started questioning the Tenth Doctor on this, like, well, isn't there something where if I step on a butterfly, it's going to, to cause some sort of tragedy on the other side of the world. What have butterflies ever done to you? It's like, or what happens if I kill my own grandfather? Were you planning? Yeah, were you planning on killing him? (laughs) I like the uh, response in the Dresden files to that. I don't want to give too much away, but there's a really great line. (laughs) Okay. Well, what if I try and go back and kill my grandfather? He gives you a beat down. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. There was a show on Netflix called Travelers, I think. And the whole premise is time travel. They're, we're sending people from the future to the past to try and change what's happened and make the future better. Uh, and one of the rules is every time they send somebody back, it creates a hard line where they can't send anybody back earlier than that. And there's this huh? really great episode 
the the whole time travel being program is being run by an artificial intelligence and it gets to a point where there's this critical moment the entire future depends on this one moment and the program doesn't know how to solve it and so it starts sending travelers back into the same person there's a consciousness transfer where the the traveler takes over a person who was just about to die so that that way they're not messing with continuity too much this person was going to be removed from history and so they no longer matter and so the computer sends somebody into that person's brain, and from then on, they're trying to, to change history. So the computer sends somebody back into this mind, and they fail. Three seconds later, the computer sends somebody back into the same person, and they fail. Three seconds later, again, until that person's brain is so baked from having been overwritten so many times, the computer chooses the person standing right next to them and starts oh, it again until it finally works out the sequence of events that will get it what it wants. It was a, a really brilliant use of that Groundhog Day mechanism. With It was adhering to the rules of the story. You were seeing the consequences that they'd set up from those rules, and you got to see, because the person coming in at the end of this sequence dies. Whatever they were planning to do didn't work, and so they get overwritten three seconds after they arrived. And so each following person isn't experiencing it again, but the audience is. Oh. It was a really cool take on that on that mechanism. The show as as a whole overall didn't really excite me all that much. I mean, I like a good time travel story, but I just I didn't care about the characters all that much. Um, but that particular episode made watching everything up to that point kind of worthwhile. Addressing time travel used in a clever way and in a satisfying way i feel like i've got to point out how it was used in the tv show babylon 5 mm, yeah oh i've forgotten about that yeah you get a time travel episode in the very first season in the episode babylon squared and the reason the station is called babylon 5 is because it's the last of the babylon stations there have been four others like the first three blew up babylon 4 disappeared and suddenly it reappears in this section of space not too far away from Babylon 5. Now they send out a search party and they find there's Babylon 4. And it's got all of its crew members still aboard there. Everyone's panicking. And it's got someone else, this weird alien named Zathras. Oh, yes. And then it disappears again. But they are able to get everyone out and evacuate it. What happened to it? No one knows. All that they know is what Sathra said was that it was needed, that there was this war going on, this mysterious battle with dark forces and someone in a spacesuit. So you're left with this mystery, and they don't. The, the show at that point doesn't try to answer any more questions. It happened, and we're moving on. Because in the overall story, it's not time for it yet. And they don't bring it back until season three with the episode War Without End. And the way that they tie it all together is so satisfying, so well done. It's, it's become a pair of my favorite episodes, not just in Babylon 5, but of all time, of, of any series. Have either of you ever used time travel as a mechanic in either of your role-playing games or... Well, yeah, we'll just go with role-playing games. Any role-playing campaigns or adventures where you use time travel? No, but then again, I've only run a couple of games. I played a uh, 
Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game, utilizing their time travel rules. Dimension hopping, time travel was the name of that source book. Uh, Turtles in Time, I think. And it was fun. Uh, You don't try to deal with causality at all. You just say anything goes, it's Ninja Turtles. Right. See, I did once use it kind of as a, I mean, I've used it as a gag in some fantasy role-playing games. I, I used to run this absolutely ludicrous fantasy game with just a bunch of us kind of palling around together as role-playing is, but with a bit more tongue-in-cheek verbal warfare between uh, player and, and GM. Like if you say a thing that is able to be interpreted more than one way, uh, you can use the pun to your advantage. And so it just, you know, it just got absolutely awful, but um, in the best ways. There was one time they, they knew they were working against something that was some larger, darker conspiracy. And so they got a message through this mirror, which there was an individual who they recognized, but his face was lined and grizzled and wrinkled. His hair was was white, and they could see behind him just horrible devastation of post-apocalyptic. And he said, you need to get to this point at this time to prevent this from happening. And they said, well, wait, wait, how far in the future are you? Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) But other than that, it's been... But again, I mean, that's how I like time travel. Not serious. You use it for a purpose. And it's lighthearted and it's kitschy. I also do the Doctor Who role-playing game, which has its own guidelines for time travel. But again, also not any more seriously than than the show takes it. We've used the term wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey here a couple of times. And there was that episode, I think, the Day of the Doctor's. It was the one which had Matt Smith and David Tennant, but it also had uh, John Hurt John Hurt as the war doctor. And Matt Smith said something about how it's all wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. And, and John Hurt's character is like, did you just say wibbly-timey-wimey? And with just utter disbelief and disdain in his voice. And David Tennant's doctor is behind him shaking his head going, I don't know where he gets that stuff. <laughs> Oh, that was one of the funnest. I know there were several parts they were trying to play off as being very serious, but I was just too busy having fun. Yeah, I I tend to forget the serious parts of that in Selective Headcanon. That one I actually saw in the theater. No way. Yeah, they did that limited release theatrical showing of that episode in stereo. And it was really cool because they had that thing with the painting. Oh, it's a 3D painting. And it actually was a 3D painting in the show. And that was a, a cool effect that I think is... It's unfortunate that that's lost on people who only see it on TV. Oh, no, no. I I was able to catch, even on TV, that when the camera panned over, I was able to see that the, the depth of the painting. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's cool. It's probably like It was even cooler dimension. when it was actually in stereo. I bet. Yeah, that had to be beautiful in 3D, but it's still it's still pretty neat on on the small screen. That's totally aside from the time travel issues. Yeah, <laughs> close okay. enough. We always appreciate a good effect. It was cool to watch Doctor Who in a theater with a lot of Fuvians. Oh, I around. bet. Yeah, that brings out the fan enthusiasm. I mean, it, there's something about the energy of a room when you know that there's enough fandom in one place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, how loud did it get when David Tennant appeared on screen? 
You know, it really didn't. I think everybody was just holding their breath and they were so excited and they were they were all trembling with, ooh, this is going to be good. Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't all the cheering that you'd expect until the very end when you saw all the doctors lined up and then people cheered for that. Well, and also, let's face it, David Tennant takes all our breath away. I mean, <laughs> there you have it. And I've got to ask about this, but what about, I bet there was probably more than a few sniffles and cries of surprise when you get to the very end of that episode and you see the doctor, you know, Matt Smith, talking to the caretaker and the camera pulls back and you see who it is. Yeah, I wasn't paying attention to the rest of the audience at that point. (laughs) You were too wrapped up in the moment. Yeah. So what you need to do is go back in time and look at the audience just (laughs) for James. If you do time travel, come back and tell him before he asks the question. And, oh, gosh, seriously, Brian, we gave you a simple mission and you couldn't do it. Jeez, it obviously didn't happen. So thanks. Well, it did happen, but there were too many ripple effects and I had to stop myself. (laughs) No, it wasn't. I misspoke. The character wasn't the caretaker. That was a different episode. It was the curator. The curator. Yes. When we brought up this topic initially, James, you said something about Bill and Ted. (laughs) Yes. And although it's got a huge causality problem at the very beginning, why does Rufus get involved to begin with? Um, I really liked the way that Bill and Ted, as stupid and as doofusy as they are, used their time machine to solve their problems. They used it. They weaponized it, essentially. Remember a bucket. (laughs) Yes. And that's something that most time travel stories kind of dance around oh we can't get involved in events that we're already involved in no use the time travel to to solve the problems not to just create the problems right i said bill and ted have this have this wonderful thing with the time travel anyway that i i wish that if i had any sort of time travel device that it would be just something handheld where i could peer backwards in time just to watch something happen like, how did it look like as the manipole system was first deployed in, you know, in Roman tactics? Or what did this look like at the time? You know, how did how oh, the did the mechanics on my guard of were really accurate? Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. I mean, there, the the SCA as a whole would completely change if we had that ability. Yeah, I mean, there are and there are a number of mysteries that we have to use clues to reconstruct wouldn't it be just absolutely fascinating to watch it happen i mean in some ways it would still be an artificial construct of interpretation of what you are seeing because no two people can even see the same thing and agree on what's just happened but still Mm -hmm. um i think it would be a an amazing experience to see firsthand you know how a number of different conflicts or just simple basic how did they first yeah. mill their grain into bread and things of that sort? Now, the idea about using time travel so proactively like that, and I can't believe I'm going to bring this up, but is a is a major focus in the first couple of seasons of, love it or hate it, Star Trek Enterprise. <laughs> there is the subplot yeah. of, the, of the whole temporal Cold War, there's different factions from the future who have different views on how time travel should be used. 
and uh, one group believes it should only be used for observation and education. Another faction believes, no, we should go back in time and change events to make the our, our future present time better. And it's a cool concept, but I think it could have been executed better in the show. I think that's pretty much true of half the time travel. Sorry, I'm, I'm going to correct that. Uh, I, I would say nine-tenths of time travel that's utilized in sci-fi and fantasy. So I completely agree with you on that. Now, that won't stop me from watching them. But, I completely you know. agree with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> there was another fun show that I enjoyed uh, called Continuum. Uh, and the premise oh, of that yeah. one was a group of terrorists managed to send themselves back in time, and they're trying to carry out their ideology in the past to change the way the future works, you know, just like most time travel stories work. And a cop accidentally gets sent back with them, and she's trying to prevent them from accomplishing their goals. And she's brought back a little bit of, of the technology from the future. And of course, she has to keep it secret and keep what she's doing secret, even though she gets involved with a modern law enforcement. And I thought that was a it was an interesting story. I liked the characters a lot better in that one than I did in Travelers. A lot of times the temporal mechanics didn't quite work. There were a lot of inconsistencies and things like, well, the time travel the way you described it, this doesn't this story doesn't work. But I thought the storytelling, the uh the characters and the investment that they had in what was happening made it a worthwhile show, even if the time travel itself wasn't 100% workable. See, that was one of the shows that was more Kajo's thing than it was mine. I saw a few episodes, and it looked interesting, but I never got far enough into it to examine how do the mechanics work or not work. And it may be that there's a thing that happens in time travel stories where the theory that you're omnidisciplinary scientist gives you may not be correct. Like you look at Back to the Future and Doc Brown gives you all kinds of things about, oh, the universe is going to be destroyed. This paradox is going to just unravel everything. And the fact is he's wrong because he's got one data point to work with. <laughs> and you can't really know what time travel is actually like until you do it. And so the, the explanations that you get may not be accurate. And maybe that's the case in Continuum, where the things that we were told about how time travel works were just coming to us as someone telling us, and the actual fact of the matter, the experience that we had, differs from that. So maybe I'm a little bit too rough on them for breaking their own rules, because who knows what the rules actually are versus what the characters think that those rules are. But while we're on the subject of Doc Brown, am I the only one who imagines this guy firing up his DeLorean for the first time to say, okay, we're going to go back and prevent the burning of the Library of Alexandria? And then once he gets back and he, he says, uh, turns out it was burned down by flaming tire marks. So, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking on. Great, Scott. Yeah, there's always that self-fulfilling prophecy element to some time travel stories. Well, it's... It's been a storytelling mechanic since Oedipus Rex, so mm -hmm. eh, that's okay. <laughs> Just depending on how you use it. That was actually one of the first time travel stories that I read. I want to say it was Heinlein, but I don't remember for sure, in which someone pops out of a hole and says, gives to the main, main character, you have to do this, gather these books, and then I'm going to come back 
and gather the information that you've that you've gathered. And so bring all this stuff together and give it to me when I appear again. And the guy thinks, well, what if I get this material and then I ambush the guy and take over his time machine? And it turns out at the end of the story that he does this and he's actually turned himself into the guy. And then he realizes, oh, shoot, now I have to go back through the time hole and tell myself to get all this stuff. <laughs> and I think that was one of the first times when I started thinking about that self-fulfilling loop and how to tell a time travel story that is satisfying and internally consistent. I haven't got there yet. <laughs> yeah, I think that's why I, if I ever do use it as a mechanic as in a fantasy game or a sci-fi game, again, I'll be hang the sense of it and it's, it's going to be a cheap trick because I, I don't think that I could be internally consistent. It's because it's almost impossible. And because you don't have a team of writers and continuity editors helping you with your game. Oh, they only make it worse. Yeah, they really do. <laughs> as much as Kaja and the girls love you, I don't think they love you that much. <laughs> what, to carry around a team of editors with me? Who do you think my team of editors are? That's who I'm talking about. <laughs> well, do we have anything else we wanted to say on time travel? I mean, honestly, we could probably go hours discussing this and then come back from the future to warn us about talking for hours about it. <laughs> I do want to make one recommendation. The chaplain of the Christian Gamers Guild, uh, Mark Young, has written a long-running series for The Examiner that looks at time travel in movies. And he's got a particular theory of time replacement that he says, this is the one, this is everything I write about, is talking about the time replacement theory. But he's written about Terminator. He was the one that wrote that article about 12 monkeys. Any time travel story that's out there, he's probably written about it. Uh, and his website is mjyoung.net and you can find his articles about time travel there and i recommend if you're if you like the topic of time travel and you want to see what somebody who thinks deeply about it thinks about various stories give him a read well i think that will wrap it up for time travel then and that will lead us to mike who hopefully has our zombie apocalypse plan of the week which maybe didn't work, and he's come from the future to tell us about the one that will work. What have oh, you got? I have actually time-traveled to the past in order to bring this one to you. In fact, I have time-traveled to episode zero of Geek at Arms, and what I am introducing to you is the solution of the zombie apocalypse with the brand-new product, Toe Frames. Toe Frames is an ethically sourced, <laughs> vegan, tofu-based brain alternative. With Toe Frames, we can change one decaying heart and corrupted mind at a time. Is that the official slogan, or is that still being workshopped? I, you know, we're still working on it. Um, it. Yeah, I mean, the good thing is, is that the slogans are, are eh, but the actual product, I mean, it has the same squishiness and same relative... Eh, taste of real brains and so so long as zombies don't really know the difference um nobody but soybeans has any regrets about it so there you go <laughs> i think that will work for most zombies as a whole until you start getting into the south because as has been proved by uh stores that have been selling out of foodstuffs for various disaster preparedness whether it's for a hurricane, a winter storm, or whatever, you get people from Texas, Louisiana, Florida. If given a choice between starving or buying soy products, 
Let me put it this way. The soy products stay on the shelf. <laughs> All through the disaster. All through. Everything else is empty, but that four-foot by five-foot section of soy products, that's fully stocked. <laughs> the dog section, the pig ears have sold out, but the toe frames are still there. Exactly. <laughs> Well, that will conclude this episode of Geek at Arms. We want to thank everyone for listening in. Make sure you check us out online at our website, geekatarms.com, Facebook at facebook.com slash geekatarms, and on Twitter at armsgeek. If you listen to us through iTunes or through the Google Play Store, subscribe, give us a like, leave us a review. That helps other people find the podcast as well. And from myself and Brian and Mike... Be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs>